Coming up, we talk mermaids with Ali Weinstein, vampires with Matt Reeves, and a glittery costume with fashion designer Izzy Camilleri. So I just started thinking about what it meant to be able to put on this alter ego, this costume, and transform physically into that. And that's how it all took off. I started researching mermaids from there. Bit by bit, you find yourself, despite yourself, starting to actually identify with the killer. Why, throughout history, uh, have we been so fascinated by this woman of the water? It was more just about being celebratory. To this day, if you were to show me a picture of Linda Blair and her Reagan McNeil getup, and I wasn't prepared, you didn't tell me you were going to show it to me, I would the, the hair stands up on my neck, and I the blood runs cold, and I, I have a visceral reaction. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Welcome, come on in, pull up a stool. Have a drink at the bar, pour yourself a Negroni, we just made a fresh picture of them, and sit back and listen to the conversations as they fly through the air. We've got some good ones for you today. A little bit later, Matt Reeves will be here talking vampires and horror movies. His new film, War for the Planet of the Apes, is tearing it up at the box office right now. We go back a few years with him, though, and... It's a really fascinating conversation. Then Izzy Camilleri will be here. She's a fashion designer and just written a book called Izzy's Eating Plan. I'll tell you all about that. First up though, Ali Weinstein's here to talk about mermaids. It's a new documentary. It's not a historical look at marine folklore or the history of the Starbucks logo, nothing like that. Stories of underwater half-fish, half-human beings luring sailors to their death have been written about for centuries, but here Allie takes a humanist approach, deep diving into the lives of people living the mermaid fantasy. I asked her, how did you get interested in mermaids? Actually, it was Wikiwachi, the mermaid theme park in Florida. I read about it in an article in the New York Times Magazine a few years ago, and they had interviewed a whole bunch of women who worked there um, and who had worked there back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And the way these women spoke about their job as a mermaid um, just sort of fascinated me because they talked about it as if it were the most important thing that they had done in their whole lives, you know, like that it was this completely transformative experience for them. And so I just started thinking about what it meant to be able to put on this alter ego, this costume, and transform physically into that. And that's how it all took off. I started researching mermaids from there and saw that there was this subculture that I had no idea about before. And we meet along the way uh, a number of people, and the stories as they kind of are revealed to us. Um, uh, are all like unique and kind of fascinating. Some of them, uh, Cookie was abused when she yeah. was younger and finds a way out, you know, through mermaiding. We have Jules, who's a a, a person that has gone under transition, uh, yeah. and 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 finds uh, acceptance in the mermaiding community. Were you surprised by the depth of the stories that you uncovered? Yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, 
I, when I first started researching this, I felt as if I could relate a little bit just because I grew up loving the water. I was a synchronized swimmer for many, many years. And even though I never put on a tail myself before I started researching this film, I immediately connected to what some of the women were saying, even in that very first article that I read about feeling more at peace with themselves and more beautiful underwater because I experienced that before. And so... I definitely expected to have that kind of healing power in the stories that I was going to hear, but sort of the the ubiquitousness of that was shocking to me. Um, so my producer and I went to Murfest, this mermaid convention, um, before we started shooting the film, just to do some research and find characters. And we were blown away by how quickly so many people that we talked to opened up about what was their catalyst for getting in the tail for the first time. And for many, many people, there was a traumatic moment or a very dark moment in their lives that made them want to step back and do something different and, and sort of live out a fantasy of theirs, I guess. And I enjoyed that the film lets the subjects do the talking. We don't yeah. have, you know, a psychology professor from U of T chiming in and saying, well, you know. Why? Yeah. And so that obviously a, a conscious decision. Why yeah. did you make that decision? For that reason, I just didn't... Well, to start with, I really wanted to, as much as possible, evoke the feeling of being in the water for the viewer, which is impossible on screen, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I wanted so badly to transmit that feeling of um, peace and meditation that so many of the women that we talked to described, and um, and so that's why, like, that's why for so many of the interludes in the film where we hear about the myths, we chose to really go underwater and shoot all of that slow-mo but in terms of the rest of the film and the information that the viewers are getting I just wanted it to be an experience and I was really really hoping from the start that um, someone who walks in and watches the film w might find it sort of amusing at first or might be able to laugh at some of those stories because there's a lot of eccentric characters in the film but that by the end they would feel that they could really relate to these people even if they don't share this, this desire to wear a tail and so um, yeah, it was really important to me to have these women telling their own stories, and I didn't really care to make it academic or historical. I mean, there's so, the thing is, there's so many mermaid myths from all over the world. It's such a rich history, and you know, there's so many directions that you could go with this film in particular, with a film titled Mermaids, because, because there's so much to say, really. Um, and so it was difficult to sort of find the right notes to hit, but um, I think it was easy just to be like, okay, well, this is what we don't want. We don't want it to be academic. Well, yeah. I, I like how it is a slow reveal. You know, yeah. essentially we, we, we meet all the characters and then, you know, we start to learn a little bit more as we go on and it deepens it. It deepens yeah. what uh, wearing a tail uh, means to them for individual reasons. And I think that, you know, something that could be seen as kind of ridiculous or kitschy or yeah. whatever else uh, becomes something else. But you have to get to know the people first. Yeah. And that's what yeah. the film allows us to do. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> that was the goal. Yeah, yeah. And so just to sort of expand on that a little bit more, mm -hmm. let's talk about Jules. Sure. Um, she is someone uh, who has transitioned, and mm -hmm. there is a noticeable uh, trans contingent in the mermaid community. 
Yeah. Uh, now, for I think maybe kind of obvious reasons, but perhaps you could tell me what you discovered. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jules very quickly opened up to us and was really giving with her story. Um, and she she describes it in the film as being able to actually forget her biological body for a little while because it's physically covered. And so there's that very obvious um, benefit to wearing a tail for her. And it's really beautiful, I think. Um, but I think that maybe more than that, there's also the, the symbolism of mermaids, which... You know, for me, I had this big question at the beginning, like, why throughout history uh, have we been so fascinated by this woman of the water? And and I, I was really amazed to find out how universal the myth is, because I had no idea that there's mermaid myths from every corner of the world. And so it just seemed to me like, what is it about this woman that's been so eternally fascinating and that so many people connect to, and in particular, so many women connect to, I think even more than men. There are more men out there, and there are some in the film, as you know, but but it's definitely predominantly women. And I think that there's something about a mermaid where she is both free and independent and powerful, which, you know, makes her an easy figure to aspire to be like. But at the same time, in so many of the legends, she's sometimes depicted as lonely or having this unrequited love or feeling sadness and a yearning to be different than she is. So I think that duality in a mermaid is something that allows people to connect to her very easily because she's very human in her suffering, but she also is so free in this other sense that you kind of just want to be like her. So I think that's true of anyone who feels a connection to mermaids, but I think in particular for trans people that, that um, you know, that symbolism is really strong of, of yearning for something different than what we're born with. That was Ali Weinstein talking about her film Mermaids. I just love one of the characters in the film at one point says, all tales are welcome here. It's a welcoming film about a subculture, frankly, I didn't know anything about, but I'm glad it exists out there, even though I'm unlikely to don a tail and go swimming anytime soon. Izzy Camilleri has a new book out. She's a fashion designer, first and foremost, but her new book, Izzy's Eating Plan, it's available at izzyseatingplan.com, is a, a book about how to feel better, how to eat with intention, how to make yourself look great and feel great, and $2 from the sale of every copy of this book. Uh, goes to Crohn's and Colitis Canada and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation in the United States. So it's all for a good cause. Uh, We talked about the book and then we had to talk about Gord Downey. Gord Downey, the Tragically Hip, they just did their final tour and he wore the most astounding suits during this tour. They were hot pink 
turquoise, silver, and gold suits. They were bold, they were beautiful, and designed by Izzy Camilleri. He also wore some other stuff that Izzy didn't design. Uh, there were ankle boots with the lyrics from A Head by a Century lasered onto the soles, uh, some very cool Bob Dylan-inspired hats uh, created by Karen Gingras of a place called Lilliput Hats. But I just wanted to hear from Izzy about what it was like working with Gord Downey. First up, though, we talk about her book, Izzy's Eating Plan. Ah, uh, well, you should just be eating with intention. Right. And, just, and what does that mean? Uh, it just means just being aware of, of what you're eating. And, and um, there, there is a plan to follow, which, which um, just helps you balance your meals so that when, when you're digesting, it's not turning into fat, basically. And what was it that, that sort of pushed you towards writing this book? Um, well, because it's not your thing. You're a fashion designer, exactly. Right? So, yeah, it is a little yeah. nuts. But um, when uh, approaching fifty a few years ago, I uh, I just thought it was about time that I took care of myself, and so I really just became responsible for those twenty five pounds I've continually gained and lost for the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you hit fifty. There's a plateau that happens, and it's hard to describe to people that aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. But wait for it, uh, you guys on the other <laughs> yeah. side of the panel, because uh, unusual things happen. Yeah, that you can't control. It seems that you can't control, but I think you're suggesting that you can. Totally, you with totally, intention. totally. And it just became really inspirational, and 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 I was becoming successful at it. And and I just it was a very out of body experience many times, just really thinking about it and and seeing how simple it actually is when you really care. Okay, describe the uh, describe a day's menu for me, if you can. Um, in the morning, I have a healthy cereal and yeah. I include berries in it. And uh, and then at lunch, I started creating this salad. And I never used to eat a lot of salads until I started doing this. Um, but just just making sure there's some good protein in there. It 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 helped me kept me full all right. afternoon, and then dinner would be like a protein, like a chicken or um, uh, tofu if you're not into eating meat. Um, rice, like brown rice, and some veg, and that's a you know a big full meal. And I'd have snacks in between as well. You're eating like five times a day, probably. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I would have thought that your experience in the fashion industry would have peaked this thing because you're surrounded by people who I would think have unusual diets, have crash Um, diets, eat uh, cotton balls dipped in yogurt. I've heard about that kind of thing uh, to fill them up so they don't lose weight, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. No, not really. I think a lot of that, um, I think a lot of that is the media actually. Really? Yeah. It makes a good story. It, it does. But, um, you know, I think, I think we're all kind of living our own lives and, and, Dealing with health the way that we do individually. I have to uh, talk about uh, Gord Downey. And we'll talk about the book a little bit more. But That's okay. Y- Everybody you, wants to talk about Gord Downey. You've designed for <laughs> Gord Downey. And you designed the costume that he wore on the on the final tour. I did. So tell me about that because it was striking. And, and it's probably become uh, one of the more iconic outfits, uh, certainly in Canada. There were little girls that were dressing as Gord Downey. You must have seen those photographs yeah, with the top yeah. hat and the feather and all this one. Tell me, describe the outfit for those who don't know, and then tell me a little bit about the, the genesis of it. Uh, well, the outfit itself was the uh, metallic, colorful metallic suits that he wore. There was actually seven of them. Um, he, he started the tour with four, and then uh, once he got to, or just before Calgary, he, uh, we added three more colors. Right. Um, 
So and the Jaws shirt was that you as no, well? No, it actually wasn't. No? It, that was just part of his his own personal right. wardrobe. And the night that he wore it, um, I, I didn't I didn't know we were commun- in communication all mm-hmm. the time. Um, but when I saw photos, I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that was just his own. Right. Um, and so how that all started is uh, I met Gord in late 2014. And he was looking for some some leather to wear on the fully and completely tour, which was what they did in 2015. Mm-hmm. And so he got my name through a friend of a friend, and um, and we just hit it off. And and I, I was able to to deliver what he was looking for fairly quickly because he was he came to me about three weeks before they went on tour. Right. And uh, so we we ended up doing stuff throughout the year because the tour um, had. You know, there was different legs of the mm-hmm. tour, so he they would go out and then come back. And right. so we just kept working together for the entire year or up until September when that tour ended. And then uh, and then he, he actually put Metallic on the table then, um, which was, you know, pretty surprising. And, and um, but then he took a break and then that's when he found out about his his health situation. Uh, but then we we picked up when the tour started. I think it's so striking. I think that's what people think about it. And I I wonder when you're designing something like that, I mean, the idea is, I guess, that people in the back row Mm -hmm. are getting the show because Mm -hmm. this thing is so kind of outrageous and it's shiny and it's bright and and you can't help but notice them wearing it. Yeah, and I think think the intention wasn't really about the guys in the back row or it was more just about being celebratory. Right. And about um, just celebrating what what they were doing, and and uh, I know for Gord himself, he he felt great on stage, and it and it really gave him something else, you know, to to represent up there, mm-hmm. and um, and you know we knew it was going to be a great tour, and yeah. that it was going to be impactful, but we had no idea what it was going to become and what it has become well i watched i mean so did i (laughs) yeah i didn't see the show live but i i watched and i was so moved by some of it because you know there's something about the final the end Mm -hmm. like the and and it as it turns out it's not exactly that for him and and hopefully were years away from yeah. that. But this was being announced as that. And there was something, like, there was almost primal, his his uh, countenance on stage. And there was one point where he was yelling, he was shouting, and I thought, this is like a primal scream of someone who is is doing something possibly that they love, possibly for the last time. And it was, I just, I, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. All right, all right. I admit it. I went on a little bit there at the end. But I was just so struck by watching the live broadcast of the Tragically Hip's last concert. Gord was wearing that suit. Gord Danny was wearing that suit. One of Izzy Camilleri's glittery creations. But there was so much emotion, so much power. It was like hearing a, a, a person doing a primal scream on stage almost. There was something that was so raw about it that anyone that saw it could not help but be moved by it. So anyway, I hope that the Tragically Hip go on to make records and to entertain audiences like they have for the past several decades. Fingers are crossed. Up next, Matt Reeves. Now, Matt Reeves right now has a big shiny movie in the movie theaters, War of the Planet of the Apes. He's taken a story 
that we've been familiar with. The first one came out in 1968, and he's pushed it and shoved it and molded it to be a big summer blockbuster, but it's actually about stuff. It's actually about community. It's about fear of the other. It is a great piece of speculative fiction that has great action, but it's not just about the great action. It's about the themes, the underlying themes of compassion, applying compassion when it's necessary. This is a terrific movie that could have been a throwaway and still made a fortune at the box office. Here's a director who made Cloverfield a big monster movie that wasn't about the big monster movie. It was kind of about what happened around the big monster. He also made a movie, and this is the one we're going to talk about today, called Let Me In. It's a remake of Let the Right One In, a Swedish art house hit about a vampire trapped in a 12-year-old body. Uh, she's played in the American version by Chloe Grace Moretz. She has a bullied neighbor. Uh, it is a new spin on a vampire tale. You'll hear all about it in this conversation, but what I really liked about this conversation is not just the conversation about Let Me In, although if you haven't seen that, hopefully this will push you towards your Netflix machine or whatever it is, however you enjoy older movies now. Check this one out. But what I really liked about this one was just getting to do a bit of a, a film geek out with Matt Reeves. Go see more for the Planet of the Apes, but first, listen to this conversation from September 2010, and you'll get a little sense about what he's all about. When the f opening credits come up, I saw Hammer Films. Yes. And now Hammer hasn't really been active for a while. Yeah. But I grew up over watching. 30, over 30 years, yeah. yeah. And my memory of Hammer Films, and I loved the Christopher Lee Draculas and yeah, all that stuff, absolutely. was that they were really lurid, right? The idea was that there was, you know, blood and red colors. And it just, like, they looked really startling. Absolutely. Let Me In doesn't have that look, uh -huh. though, and which is which is something a little different. So tell me a little bit about working for Hammer, but I guess not making a Hammer film. Right. Well, it's interesting because those were the kind of movies... First of all, as a young person, horror movies terrified me. And my memory of Hammer films is staying up, you know, late at night and seeing them, you know, going through the channels and, and catching them on Channel 9 and them literally giving me nightmares. And because of exactly the things you're saying, they were so lurid. They had, you know, the, the sort of blood red and all of that sort of Christopher Lee stuff. I found it absolutely terrifying. And so it's, it's kind of ironic that that's what I do now is make these genre <laughs> films. And yet um, there's something about it that is a very uh, exciting thing to do. And there was something about the idea that this was the first vampire film from Hammer Films in like over 30 years mm -hmm. that I found to be really, really exciting. But it is a vampire film in, in a different tradition, and that has um, a, a lot to do, or everything to do, with, with John Lindquist's story, which is really, um, I think, an incredible story in that he, he takes the vampire genre and uses it as a, as a way to describe the pain of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing, it's a strange thing to say, but I found that, you know, in reading it and in the Swedish film and what we tried to do, I actually think that it's a very sort of realistic sort of tale, even though it's a vampire story. And that's part of why I think it doesn't have the sort of grand, you know, luridness maybe of the original Hammer films, because this film has a bit of naturalism to it. Well, I think 
all the best science fiction and all the best horror and all the best genre films aren't really about the horror and the science fiction. And message under the surface, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, like I said, as a, as a kid, they terrified me. And in fact, to this day, if you were to show me a picture of Linda Blair and her Reagan McNeil getup and I wasn't prepared, <laughs> you didn't tell me you were going to show it to me, I would, the, the hair stands up on my neck and I, the blood runs cold and I, I have a visceral reaction. There are things in those movies that just tear me apart, but it's really the reason these things are so effective, I think, is because they are about something other than what the metaphor, you know, other than what the surface part is. The, the metaphor that they are um, using is a way to explore a lot of really sort of real and frightening things and, and to explore our own fears. And that's why, you know, you can make a movie about a giant monster trashing New York and it's really not about that at all, you know, under the surface. And that's that's sort of what makes it challenging and interesting as, as a filmmaker. And I think that the that genre films, my favorite genre films, as you're saying, um, are ne- are never about the myth itself. They're about what the myth is using to describe that's actually quite real. Mm-hmm. Well, I was put in the mind, after having seen uh, Cloverfield and then this film, yeah. I was put in the mind of, of John Carpenter, not stylistically uh-huh. particularly, but and and not even, I mean, I, I, he makes genre films for sure, but sure. Um, but every time out, he creates a new monster, yeah. you know? And, and he creates monsters and takes monsters, I think, that we're kind of familiar with mm-hmm. and puts a little twist on them. Absolutely. Cloverfield, you made a big monster movie. <laughs> Something that's been done a lot of times before, mm-hmm. but you didn't really ever show us the monster. Uh-huh. You and you 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 took a different tact on it. Sure. And and in this one, very definitely. I mean, I think you know one of the things that I thought was cool about the original, which we'll talk about in a sec, and the and the new film, is that there's no coffins, there's no castles, there's no uh-huh. capes, there's stuff, uh-huh. and it, they're both set in a landscape that's very stark and yes. white, and the complete opposite of the kind of gothic thing yes. that we're so used to with vampires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. I mean, I think, is that, I mean, uh, are we, am I seeing the, the beginnings of a, of a long career of reinvention every time out? Well, it's interesting. I don't, it's, it's, the, I love the connections that you see. I think the connection that I see most strongly between the two films is that both of them, to me, are very palpably, palpably about dread. Right. Um, that that in, in Cloverfield, there's this sense of something that is coming, something bad that, that you're in the middle of. And it's that sort of drawing out of that feeling of anxiety. And I think what I responded to in Lindquist's tale was the idea of the metaphor, this sort of, you know, vampire story really being used to describe how it feels to be a bullied kid, how it feels to feel so alone, that to go to school feels like a horror story, to feel like, it feels like a horror movie, and that the development of all of that in the movie was really less about the moments of sort of shock or the moments when things actually happened, but much more about the drawn out anticipation that something horrendous is coming. And I think that that's something that I, I don't know, I guess I relate to palpably. And, um, and that's the connection I sort of see through the two is that there's, you know, even though stylistically they're quite different, but they're also very, very point of view driven. I mean, one is the point of view is so restricted that it's literally his handicam. It's not even HUD's point of view, it's his camera's point of view. But I tried to, as much as possible in the telling of this story, move it into Owen's point of view. I wanted to do it in a kind of, in a much more classical way, in a kind of Hitchcockian inspired way, or like a Polanski film or something, where you really get into the way the character would see things, but in a very classical sort of restrained sense. And I love that kind of filmmaking. And I think the fun thing about it is, is the idea of taking you through an experience and making you identify with that character, even as they participate in or are part of really disturbing things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a scene where Richard Jenkins 
begins the sort of it's the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. He goes out to get blood for for Abby the second time, and it goes wrong. And that was really all inspired for me by Dial M for Murder because I started thinking, you know, what did Hitchcock do? He did this thing where he had a scene that was all about how they were going to kill Grace Kelly, and you're thinking, oh my God, these guys are going to kill Grace Kelly. This is terrible. He tells you everything they're going to do, and then none of those things happens. And Bit by bit, you find yourself, despite yourself, starting to actually identify with the killer. And you start thinking, oh, my God, oh, oh, how is he going to get out of this? And then when she actually stabs him, it's tremendously tragic. And it's somehow he's turned the tables and he's implicated you because you've actually felt yourself as a killer and actually got involved in his killing of Grace Kelly, which is insane. And I thought, well, you know, if we could do something like that where you see Richard go out and do something once and you just see it and you're, you're, you're horrified by it, then when that starts to happen again, if you start to then go bit by bit through that event as it unravels, that by the end you might find yourself almost rooting for him to kill that kid, just anything to get out of that situation. And that's what I love about movies is that they can put you in people's shoes and you can start to sort of see the world the way they do for just a moment and that's really exciting. That, those are the things that to me in trying to do those two movies it had a lot to do with point of view and dread and drawing all of that out and, and but I love the things that you were saying too I think. Well you, you mentioned Polanski as well. And, and by and the way I, I'm a huge, I love John Carpenter like yeah, the, yeah. The, the thing I think is incredible I mean Halloween is amazing. The, the, the he thing is, is maybe the greatest movie monster of the last you know, 25 I years. I totally yeah. agree. And, and I, you know, also he's doing political things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he is, I think he's an amazing filmmaker and I think the thing is absolutely incredible. A monster that can be whatever it's going to be is such a crazy idea, It right? is a crazy yeah. idea. I was talking about that to somebody today because that movie came up and I was saying that it's almost as if, you know, it's one thing when you have nightmares and things start occurring that can't occur in reality right. and that's part of what's so horrifying. And the idea in the thing is almost as if your nightmares could come to life. The idea that there are no rules and that Nothing yeah. is really off the table. That's a horrifying idea that behind every surface could be a threat. It's yeah. kind of terrifying. It's not his best known movie, I don't think. Maybe amongst you know film geeks, maybe. Sure. But but uh, it is, I think, his best movie. The thing I agree. Just, you know, I it's think it's a, a masterful movie. Yeah. I, I I think it's incredible. In fact, I watched it not that long ago, and it still holds up. Just it's just as good. It's an amazing movie. I would also guess, and and I'm going to get really sort of deeply film geeky for a second then we'll move along but I'd also guess that you watch Repulsion uh, sometime in the last little while as yes, well yes Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby right. you know I mean I, I, I just apartment movies right and, apartment and, movies and, and, and I got and actually that. you know what else I watched I, and, and this is not a horror thing but I watched like Kieslowski movies I watched yeah. um, a short film about love right. because it was all because I remembered him and also I watched you know Rear Window because yeah. he's, he's looking through the windows yeah. like all that voyeurism and yeah apartment movies is exactly right and, and I, I got that particularly in the scene uh, with uh, Elias Kateas when he's in the apartment, yes, and that and, and Owen's coming in, and yes. all that's happening, and it just the way you shot the floor, the way all that stuff. Oh, thank you so much. Me of, of those things. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that was again, that's that sort of point of view filmmaking that I that I find so inspiring when I see, and and so it was definitely an attempt to sort of draw from those kind of sources because there that kind of filmmaking I find incredibly exciting, and yeah, yeah. and he is, I mean, Polanski is the master of that kind of mood, that kind of. And, but so was Hitchcock, too. I mean, the, the way that they know how to... The anatomy of what they do is incredible. When you break it down, the, it's kind of... I watched really, really old Hitchcock movies, too, um, just because even, even back in his early films... Like the silent movies. The, the silent movies, there, yeah. he still understood that construction in such a way as to create that suspense where he puts you in these situations and they are riveting. And I just was... I'm really blown away by that kind of... It's truly cinematic. It's doing things that only cinema can do, and that is always exciting to watch. Absolutely. Um, 
Is there a, a, a slight tweak in the Abby character from the original? Mm-hmm. Now, in the original, and this, this was my take, in the original, we don't know how old the, the 12-year-old girl, she's more or less 12, but she more might less, be yeah. 50 or she might be 100 or she, sure. you know, might be 150, sure. we don't know. And I found in the original that that she felt like she had been around for that amount of time. Whereas yes. in in the new film, mm-hmm. I, I found that she was played much more like a, a little like a girl. girl. Yeah. Well, that was a conscious choice because it was something that I saw in the book that, I don't know, the idea of which seemed particularly tragic to me, which was there's a scene where Oscar is asking Ellie about how... Um, what she is really, how old she is really, and she answers by saying, you know, I'm 12, but I've been 12 for a really long time, right. in a way that she doesn't understand. It's not yeah. just I'm 12, but I've been 12 for a really long time. She's trying to understand it herself. Right. And he says to her then something like, I don't have the dialogue verbatim, but something like, well, maybe you don't understand it because, you know, you're 12. <laughs> and then she said, are you making fun of me? And he says, no, I mean that you're a kid. We're kids. And that idea really stuck with me the idea that it wasn't that she was a 250 year old person inside a 12 year old's body she was somebody who was stuck eternally at the age of 12 and I thought that that would be a horrifying thing because you would never be able to sort of sort of evolve emotionally right. you would see things and experience things that would make you streetwise that would make you learn how to be a survivor right. but you'd still be stuck at that age and that to me was very haunting and in fact when I was trying to work with Chloe and talk about how to find the way to ground the character somewhere along the way actually before the audition process I found these photographs by Mary Ellen Mark where she was documenting a homeless family and the family's name ironically is the Dam family D-A-M-M wow. and there was a girl at the center of a lot of these photos who was the daughter and she um, she was there's one photo in particular where she's holding her younger brother's hand and she's kind of got her brother a little bit behind her and she's holding the hand and she's looking at Mary Ellen Mark in this very defiant way like nobody better mess with my brother yeah. and in a very protective way and yet under that was a tremendous sense of wound and I thought there was something about that analogy because I was just trying to find a way like how do I didn't want Chloe to play a vampire I wanted to find the real world analogy and I thought well here's here's a girl who's 12 who has seen things that most 12 year olds never see and has had to live in a way to become a survivor but under it she's still 12 and she still has all that sort of childlike to me it's the reason that the Abby in this story connects to Owen because she can recognize him, you know, in him, her. And so that's, that was, in answer to your question, a very long answer, that was the attempt, was to make her um, a bit more of a child, a child who had lived for who knows how many hundreds of years as a 12-year-old. Right. And so the, the idea that, you know, she's not just necessarily attracted to, uh, or initially, attracted to is the wrong word, but drawn to uh, Owen because he's 12, but the childlike thing of seeing the Rubens cues was kind of like, hey, that's a cool thing that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the reason, you know, that was the thing, is that she likes puzzles, and I think all of that is because that childlike part of her, the child in her, is not gone. It's it's still there, and it's stuck at that place, and there's that place of not quite comprehending, but knowing that one has to find some way to survive, and so she does. It's necessity, but there's something very tragic about that. As film geek outs go, that was a pretty good one. That was Matt Reeves. Go see his film, Let Me In. He's going to be making a Batman movie. He's got War for the Planet of the Apes in theaters right now. You can't go wrong with this guy. Check him out. I just love the passion and enthusiasm that he brings to everything that he talks about. But that's it. 
That's all there is for this week. The House of Krauss is shutting the door. It's last call at the bar. You gotta hit the road. My thanks to Izzy Camilleri, to Ali Weinstein, to Matt Reeves. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for coming back here every single week. You're always welcome at the House of Krauss. Don't overstay your welcome, but you're always welcome to come listen to the interview and make sure that you come back every single Monday. We put a new show up every single week. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. It might be one of your favorite people. So come on back and see us. 